The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Cab number 280 for August 16th, 2010, a Monday. Who would have guessed? Observers, Matt Geekab. I'm Dave Hamilton here in Durham, New Hampshire. On the other end of the Skype line is John F. Ron here in Fairfield, Connecticut. And on the other end of the Skype line, I know. Pilot Pete here in Durham, New Hampshire. I can't believe it. Finally back with welcome, you guys. Welcome, Pete. Yeah, yeah it's good to have you here. Good to be back. Awesome. Uh, anything to report today, John, before we dive right into things here? We, we do have a, a... There is no way we'll get through everything on the agenda today. That we know. Um... I got a new toy, and actually, it does oh, lead no, no, to a we, Mac we question. Said we we're going to talk about that at the end. All right, because there is a there is a Mac question involved in there. All right, all right. So I'll talk about the toy at okay. the end because I, I think it, no, it may be a valid question. So, I, anyways, I, we'll, we'll do right. it at the end because yeah, it, the, of course, we want to respond to the listener first and not talk about me. That's right. All right, so let's go with uh, let's go with Wes, and uh, Wes has an interesting question and one that many of us might see for various different reasons. Wes says. I have determined that I have two iTunes store accounts, one using a local email address and one using my mobile me address. One is being used on my iPad and the other on my Apple TV. Both have significant activity. Do I need to worry about this and or should I try to combine them somehow? If so, how would I go about doing that? If not, are there hints about how I handle this situation in iTunes on my iMac? Okay. Uh, so before I answer the question, uh, I, I want to create yet another scenario here where where this might happen, because Wes's scenario is actually more common than you might think, John. But even more common than that is the household, say, similar to what I have, where we have multiple people in the house, each with their own iTunes store account. And yet we want to share not only music, but applications and, and all of that stuff. And all of that's allowed under the under the terms of service. So. Uh, you know, I have apps on my iPhone that uh, I've purchased under my account and that Lisa has purchased under hers and vice versa. So this situation in the end, it's very similar to what Wes describes, just a different path got us there. So uh, you're talking multiple users, multiple user. Uh, I want to I want to be clear. here. Multiple so, iTunes store accounts. Right. Right. A single Mac account. Doesn't matter. Okay. Doesn't matter. And and right. also but, obviously but, multiple devices. Yes, but in the end, okay. well, and it doesn't matter. It could be a single device. Okay. And in the end, yes, it is multiple iTunes store accounts on either a device or a Mac. And it could be multiple Macs, it could be multiple devices. It really doesn't matter. Uh, okay. So I did do some research about Wes's question about consolidating them, and most people say it's impossible. Uh, there was one forum post that was sort of non-committal in its answer uh, that said to go to apple.com uh, slash support slash iTunes and click the email us link in the account and billing sec section. One person sort of inferred that they got their accounts merged that way, but I'm not convinced that, that it actually worked. Um, I'm not sure how Apple would do this because the apps are all assigned to a given account. In fact, if you go into iTunes and click on apps under your library and do a get info on any one of your apps that you've downloaded. You'll see that it's assigned to a specific user account, you know, listed by email address. Uh, so let for the you can certainly try that. But 
for the sake of this discussion, we're going to assume that it's not going to get you where you want to, where you want to be. Uh, my, my advice going forward is if you can consolidate your purchases to one account, it re- it doesn't matter in the, in the end, if you have to keep them split, like for example, Lisa and I do, uh, it's fine. But, uh, but if you can consolidate, it will make your life uh, a little bit simpler. You can manage your credit cards. You can manage your purchases. Uh, but really where it matters is when it comes to updates for those applications. Um, if you buy an app and, you know, you buy version 1.2 and then they update to version 1.3, you have to authenticate to download that update free of charge. And this is where it matters which account uh, was used to create it. Now, on your iDevice, iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, this is actually a pretty smooth process. It will pop up the little window and it'll say enter your password. Look very carefully at the email address that it's showing you there and type in the password associated with the right one. It will ask you for the right email for the, you know, for the right email address associated with the app that you're updating. If you're updating multiple apps, it will only do one set at a time, but you simply go back in and say, and it'll you know ask you to reauthenticate when you update again, and boom, you're good to go. It'll pull the rest. So on the iDevice, it works pretty well. On the Mac, it gets a little more convoluted. Uh, in fact, if you are in this situation, you may have seen where under library apps, you get the little number. It gets a little badge next to it that says... Uh, you know, the number of apps that you have to update. But when you go in and tell it to update, let's say it says you have 10. uh, But when you actually go to update, it says, well, there's only seven. The reason is those other three are known to need updates, but they're not associated with that same account. So what you do is you update the seven that are associated with the first account. And then you go into uh, iTunes, you click on the iTunes store and in the upper right corner, click your account and then choose to log out and then sign back in with the other account. At that point, then go click on apps in your library, click on check for updates, and it'll go get the updates associated with that account. Now, if you have three accounts, well, do the same thing and get back around. And then once you're done with those, set yourself back to whatever the main account's going to be. For me, what I do is I just let my iPhone or iPad update the ones associated with the alternate account, i.e. leases. And then when I sync, it slurps those updates in and I don't have to worry about the, the second step. So a little bit convoluted, but not too bad. And certainly a livable situation uh, if that's the path you uh, you have to head down. Does that make sense, John? Yes. Good. I think. Well, okay. I'm, I'm a single account, single machine, single device type of guy. So. Your, your needs are simple. And that's a beautiful thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right. So should we go to, uh, is it time to talk about Brent? Oh, absolutely. All right. Uh, so Brent writes, I have an early 2007 MacBook pro and I'm on my second battery already. I almost always use this machine when plugged in to the power. So my cycle count is pretty low. However, I was surprised that OS 10 indicated that my battery needs servicing. Is this normal with a battery with under 100 cycles on it? I guess I'm concerned and wanted to make sure that it's just the battery. Okay. Uh, yes, it is normal. In fact, we've done, we've done quite a bit of, we've discussed this on the show, so we're not going to go too deep here, but it, it's worth re- revisiting this every six months or so because it, it's, it's, well, 
it is the way it is with Apple batteries and probably just about any laptop battery. What we've found is on a machine that you've kept plugged in and don't wind up using the battery much and don't wind up cycling the battery capacity. That is the amount of charge it takes up until the point it says, no, I'm full will diminish much faster than it will on a battery that you completely abuse and, you know, either constantly bring it all the way down to zero or back up or even better uh, if you, you know, bring it down to, say, 50 percent, charge it up to 80, let it go back down to 30, charge it up to 100 percent, let it go back down to 60. It, you know, it, the more erratic and abusive you can be in terms of <laughs> how you charge your battery, the longer that battery will last in general. Obviously, we can all go out and find a specific case where, you know, the opposite's true. But we had several hundred, probably over a thousand people respond to a survey on TMO that uh, that that kind of confirmed what we what we had seen in, in limited test cases here. Uh, and that is that, you know, the best thing to do is abuse your battery if you're some. And, and it started with me because I'm exactly like Brent. I leave my computer plugged in all the time. Mm -hmm. And since we figured this out, I've actually scheduled it in my calendar to cycle do a full cycle on my battery every two weeks now i know that's not the best thing the best thing would be to constantly abuse it but the reality is i'm not going to remember to do that so at least every two weeks apple says every month i didn't find that to be enough after a month i had or after a year i had about 30 cycle counts and i was down to about 60 percent of my battery's capacity which is you know no good thankfully apple care will replace the battery for you uh if it's yep if it's less than 80% of its original capacity and with a removable battery, less than 300 cycle counts or with a built-in battery, less than a thousand cycle counts. So that's the, um, that's, that's the way it works. Brent, I know you probably out of warranty, but you might not be. Uh, if you are, even if you are out of full Apple care, call them up. You never know. Mm. They might, uh, they might come around for you. So John, you, you, you were the one that convinced me it was like you and actually Steven Swift were the, were the ones that whose usage convinced me that, that this was something warranting further oh, explanation. Yeah. And you convinced me and actually, uh, so, so Brent, so he actually did send us a screenshot, right? I think he uses, I think he used coconut battery. I use uh, battery health monitor. Okay. And now, yeah, as soon as I saw his numbers, so the numbers that he showed us, uh, his battery's original capacity was 5,600 milliamp hours. Right. Um, he was down to a maximum of 4,200, and he only had 80 cycles. Right. Now, to give you the metrics for my battery, so, so basically what I do, Dave, is I will be constantly, as you suggested, I abuse my battery horribly. I'm constantly charging and discharging it, uh, pretty much discharging it. So it gets to the point where you get uh, and you get two messages. You'll get one message where it thinks there's about 10 minutes left. Right. And then you get another message where there's about five minutes left. And as soon as I get the five minute left, then I'll plug it in and I'll, I'll ramp it up again. But in my case, so my battery, the maximum was 5,500. Yep. Right now, its current maximum capacity is 5,000 after 137 charge cycles. Yeah, see, that's good. So basically, by whooping on it, yeah, I mean, 5,000 to me is very good after that number of charge cycles. Yeah, so, uh, so, so I, I, am, I am convinced this is the right way to do it, and it's probably going to be the last, well, it's absolutely going to be the last MacBook Pro I'm going to have with this type of battery. And, right. and I'll switch between two of them. So I have two batteries, and about every month, I'll, I'll go to the other one. When, when does the, uh, 
when does the load cycle take over? Because I know it doesn't take you to go all the way down to zero or even 20 percent or, you know, it seems to be a fairly high number, like probably 70 or 80 percent. No, the way it works is you get the load cycle counter uh, and and for the benefit of our listeners, load cycle, it describes the number of full charges that the battery has had. Okay. okay. But it is a cumulative number. So the battery knows, okay, well, I went down to 50% and was charged up to 100. And then I went down to 30% and was charged to 100. And then I went down, you know, and at that point, well, now we've done 50 plus 70. So that's a load cycle plus 20. Okay. Okay. And, and so, yes, even if you have it plugged in all the time and never let it drop down to zero, you will over time see the load cycle counter tick over. And the reason is that even when it's on charge, it is draining and charging the battery uh, at different times. In fact, you cannot run or you should not run a Mac laptop without a battery in it because the power connector from the wall does not provide enough power to fully uh, to fully power the the CPUs when they're at any significant load. Right. And that forces the battery to, to kind of trickle down and trickle back up and trickle down and trickle up. Uh, but it's a very slow process. And uh, as, as we've said here, not enough to keep the battery alive right. o- over a period of time. Now I use coconut no. battery, which is a little free utility mm-hmm. to count those load cycles and that sort of thing. It, it isn't too complex or in depth, but or do you guys use something else? That's well, jo- more? John said he uses battery health monitor. Oh, okay. Brent used coconut battery. I just now I used to use coconut battery. Now I just use iStat menus because oh, yeah. uh, it's right there. It's, uh, it's right there. Yeah, right in front yep. of me. Yep. Sure enough. Yep. Yeah. Now, something else I, I want to bring up. So, so I believe that charge cycle is relative to the maximum, to the current maximum capacity of the battery. At, at I think the that current at any given time. That's correct. Not the theoret- not the maximum. But for example, in my case, so my correct. my maximum when I got the battery was fifty five hundred. Now it's five thousand. So I think it's relative. So every time I cycle through five thousand milliamp hours worth of charge, then it's going to click that counter. That's correct. Yes. Okay. That, that's, that's a that, great that, way of that's putting what it. I thought. Yep. Yep. Now, also, someone actually uh, uh, emailed us. Did I? No, I, I, I responded to the group. And it's worth mentioning because it was that article, Dave, and someone actually asked us about this uh, you know, issue with if you're not running with the battery about the power, because I do believe the newer power adapters do provide maximum power. And I did find the knowledge base article. And it has not been updated. So, so I believe that statement is continues to be true. And I think what, what effectively happens is the Mac will r- knock down the processor speed, which in effect right. draws less power. So that's, uh, that's, so, right. so that's, a, that's the big reason you don't want to run without the battery is your, your computer is not going to be running at its uh, the, the processor will not run at its maximum speed. Yeah. And I had heard some things about you may actually damage something. I, I don't and I don't know the I, that may have been speculation. Uh, on the part of the tech that shared that with me, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. Kind of lame if you damaged it. I mean, that's well. It. I mean, it's it's pretty clear that you're not supposed to run the thing without a battery. Of course, if it really is going to damage it, the, the OS should just tell you, no, 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 shut down. Yeah. Well, I guess they pretty much enforce it with the latest Macs. It's yeah. impossible to run it without the battery. Well, no, <laughs> not impossible. But it's well, very very difficult. Just void your warranty. <laughs> yeah. Right. Void your warranty on the way. That's right. It doesn't matter at that point. You void your warranty. Cool. Our first sponsor for this show is Circus Ponies at CircusPonies.com with Notebook. Notebook is their flagship product. And what it does is it's built for you to consolidate 
all the information on any given topic or subject, uh, really anything you want. A little bit daunting when you launch it because all you see, well, you see something very familiar. It's just a notebook, white lined, ready for you to do whatever you like. Now, we all know what to do with a notebook. We write in it. So with a computer, we type in it. However, you can do a whole lot more than that. As you're typing, of course, you can use an outline form. And of course, the text is all saved. But what's really cool is when you start pulling in other pieces of collateral, images, faxes, PDFs. You can even bring in, we had one listener who was pulling in the audio file, uh, the MP3 from a Mac Geek Cab episode. And then was, as he listened, he was going through and putting in little notes about what we said, links, and building essentially one notebook for each Mac Geek Cab. And that way, uh, if he thought back and said, oh, hey, you know, I know that John and Dave talked about batteries, but when was that? And so he can go through and search and find, ah, here's what they talked about. Here's the notes I took. Here's the time at which it happened. Scroll forward in the episode and listen away. You can do this. You don't have to do it with our show. You can do it with classes that you're taking. You can do it with, say, you're planning an event at home and, you know, you want to pull things in. It might be a Labor Day party. It might be a back to school event where you're just pulling all this stuff together and you want to have all the data in one place. PDFs, images, all inside notebook. Pete's raising his hand. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I actually it's got a pretty good little to do thing in there, too. You can really? set up a nice to do list. Yeah. And as you check them off, it moves it from the incomplete to the completed. So oh. you can run that in there, too. It's a perfect organizer. Wow. Very cool. OK. And this is Circus Ponies Notebook. It's available at CircusPonies.com. It is forty nine ninety five U.S., but of course, they offer a 30 day free trial. So go ahead, download it. Check it out. In fact, you could even plan your entire Labor Day party with it. Uh, you've got plenty of time because within 30 days, Labor Day is going to be long gone and you either had a successful event or, well, let's just hope you had a successful event. Try it out. Once you're convinced, back to CircusPonies.com, $49.95. Let them know where you heard it. They uh, they always appreciate that. And uh, and if you have your story with with Circus Ponies Notebook, go ahead and send it in because we always like to uh, to share real world cases here on the uh, on the show. All right. We talked in the last show, the last non-premium show, about Powerline, John. Uh, I mentioned it at the very end, and we got a lot of comments about it. Uh, the, you know, the first thing I want to say, and I mentioned this in the premium show we did, number 279. I mentioned Powerline AV500 in the show. That's not out yet, and I don't have it. What I'm using is Powerline AV200, which is the 200 megabit, the current fastest version that you can get, although 500, they say, is coming some point in, uh, at least from Netgear, which is the vendor I was using, some point, maybe September, uh, we should see the 500 megabit version. But I'm using the 200, so I just wanted to, to get that out there. Anything, anything, anything to comment on there, John, before we go to Connor's question about Powerline? Um, the only tip, yeah, I, I suspect that something was up too because, you know, we, uh, you, you gave me a link to the product. And then, yeah, I think someone either tweeted me saying I can't find it or he tweeted us. And so the way I kind of concluded that it wasn't available, Dave, I, I particularly like this site, is frugal.com. It's, uh, it's from those Google guys. And yep. if something exists and you put in even a model number, it'll, it'll show you lots of places that you can get the product. And I put in that model number and it came up with nothing. 
And, right. and in my experience, if frugal comes up with nothing, either typed it in wrong or it's not yet available. <laughs> and in this case, that, that I think it's coming out in the fall, you said? Or? Yeah, that's what, that's what they say. But but for now, and, and perhaps going forward, the AV200 is certainly fast enough for what I'm doing here and uh, and has been extremely reliable. But we're going to we're going to answer some questions. Both uh, Connor and Wesson had some specific questions about power lines. So uh, we'll take those in turn. Hey, guys, Connor P again. Apologies for my extreme verbosity recently, but you guys just have such an interesting show. I can't help myself. Um, my question this time is regarding that power line networking you were talking about. Dan, if you don't mind me asking, how is the wiring in your house? Because I live in about a hundred year old house with some pretty gnarly electrical wiring. Some of it's been replaced, some of it's still very old. And that kind of thing would make me worry about how well that the power line networking would work. If it would work, I'd be really interested in trying it. And also, do you know if any of these, like specifically the brand that you tried, if you tried the Belkin, no, the Nectar one, do they have like a, a 30-day money-back thing? Uh, because if it doesn't work in my house, I don't want to try it if there's any risk. But if it might work, I'd be interested in trying Thanks, guys. Okay, so in general, uh, the wiring in my house, my house is about 40 years old. I don't think the wiring has been replaced in any significant capacity uh, since the house was built. So, uh, you know, I I think we've got it's not 100 year old wiring, but uh, but I think it's I think it's I think it's fine. So, Pete, John, anybody? I know you guys both have comments. Well, I want to chime in here. So, so. So I, I do have a house that's about 100 years old, but it has been redone right. because when, but before I purchased it, it had to be brought up to code. And, I, and part of that involved replacing the electrical wiring. So what I did is I went to one of my walls, ripped it apart, and sh- no, I didn't. I went in the basement. <laughs> that's and yeah, the place don't, to look. Don't rip your <laughs> and and don't play with the sockets to, to find out the wiring. So basically I went downstairs, I went to the fuse box, and I checked what was coming out of it. And I have a hundred amp service, which is probably pretty reasonable for a, you know, small single family house. That's pretty weak actually. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, everything, everything works. All right. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've, uh, uh, I've never blown a fuse by having too many things on one circuit, you know, including ACs and all this, everything's spread around, but the main breaker does say a hundred on it. Okay. So anyways, um, but I checked the wiring, the, the main electrical wiring, and here's what it says on it. And, and I would say that if you have this wiring, you're probably in good shape. It says on it, Romex 14 slash 2. What does the 14 and the 2 mean, Dave? I actually, you I'm going to ask. I'm gonna, uh, oh, do you want me to ask John? What does the 14 and the 2 mean? <laughs> well, I found out I did. You know, of course, Google is, uh, tells you everything. The 14 is the gauge of wiring, and the 2 is the number of wires going through that. And basically... When I looked online, that's a pretty common grade of wire for residential, you know, regular duty house wiring. And, and everything that I had was this grade of wire. There, there are some others that, that I think you guys mentioned, but, but this seems to be something that's pretty common. And, and 14 is, is the gauge, which is the thickness of the wire. And, and I think Pete has a little of it. I saw another grade of wire. It was 12 slash three that's sometimes also used. So that's 12 gauge wire and I guess three conductor for what three phase, I guess, you know, like uh, right, dryers yeah. and, and other things. So, yeah, so I think it, I may have one. It's going to be a slightly thicker wire. 
and, Wait, and Nicole. It's a, it's a smaller number, but it's thicker. That's right. Pete, how could that? It's that makes out. no sense. It's inside out. It's upside down. It goes back uh, to, uh, I forget what I just read, like the Birmingham gauge system or something like that. But it, it's all standardized now. The uh, And it's the number of times you can pull a given thick thickness of wire through a draw plate. That's how they... Uh, Okay. That's how they initially did it. So the smaller the number, the fewer number of wires you could get through that hole in the draw plate, and therefore the larger the number. Ah, that's interesting. And and you said uh, it, it's. I'm sorry. The smaller the number. The, yeah. The smaller, smaller the number, number. The right. larger the wire. Right. Right. So interesting. That's why it's backwards, and it's the same thing with with weapons too. The 12 gauge shotgun is bigger than the 14 gauge, which is bigger than the 20 gauge because it was the number of uh, balls of shot that you could give get in a given volume for. Okay. For that given shot. So it's the same oh, type of system, which goes back to somewhere. Yeah. Some, it, it's okay. ancient. <laughs> it's um, ancient. But it's old uh, enough that it ain't going to yeah, change. Exactly. <laughs> and while it seems backwards, that's the method by which they initially right. gauge these out. So, yeah, I, my guess is, I, I mean, any rewiring that I've done in my house, I've also done with 14.2. Uh, and, and my guess is the rest of the house is 14.2. From what I've seen, it all it all looks to be uh I do happen to have two different circuit breakers in my house that are that are linked together. When I talked to the people at Netgear about this, they said, "Really, uh, it the how how do they phrase it? As long as they're close enough together in the circuit breaker panel, uh, it's gonna the signal is gonna jump from one wire to the other and." Obviously, that that happens because I've got things on multiple circuits. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like, huh, I don't know how close to the circuit panel I want to be. How do it know? How do it know? That's right. Yeah. Well, I would assume you have, I would assume this for most residences, is that you have a single wire from the pole to the house and then it splits from there. That is correct. Yeah. Well, yes, I have a single wire from the pole to the house and then I have another wire to the office. So my guess is that I could not do power line between the office and the house because they're two separate buildings. Now, it could reach back out to the street. In fact, that would be an interesting experiment that I'm definitely going to have to try now that we're talking yeah. about it. I'll, I'll bet a steak dinner. That won't happen. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure I'm buying Pete a steak now. <laughs> Dave, Dave may be the steak dinner if he uh, there you go. experiments with <laughs> Plug that. Plug that in there. Yeah, but but why wouldn't it, right? I mean, the poll, you know, it, and that presents a security concern with these, right? And I was talking to somebody about this at the Princeton Mac user group meeting, they were asking, well, can my neighbor bridge in if he's on the same pole as me? And I thought, well, that's that's an interesting question. And so I could test it here. I didn't even think about it at the time that I actually have the capacity You'd have to be on the same brand and model number. Well, the power line is power line. Yeah. But here's the thing. Even if I had let's say I had three different, uh, you know, three of the same one from from Netgear, I can set them up in a security mode where they will not talk to anyone that I have not authorized. Uh, there's a there's a way you can do it with hardware just by pressing buttons on them and it automatically kind of syncs up. Or you can go in with the software and program your own passwords in uh, that they have to use to talk to each other and encrypt their data. So oh, that's smart, which is smart. Yeah. 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 So so I do have them secure because it's it's just as easy to set them up secure as not. Uh so in theory, if my neighbor could do it, he couldn't. But but yeah, I got to test this out. I got to I got to get one and put it in here at the office and see if it uh, see if it bridges the great divide there, because that'd be pretty darn cool. 
You know, that does bring up an interesting question because our power company now allows you a very basic way to query your meter. And that I, but they only let me do it four times a month. But I can, so, you know, if, I, if I'm in couch potato mode and I don't want to walk outside and actually look at the reading, yeah, I can actually like go steps. on the web. Yeah. So I can actually, uh, but, but it does offer some more data. So, so our company, and, and I'm hearing more and more do this, I can actually click on a button and it will somehow get to my electric meter. It will not only show me the current reading, which, uh, of course, I could just look at it, but it shows me the consumption history for the last couple of hours in like 12 minute increments, which is really cool. That's cool. Because then you can tell, like I, I tried this one time. I'm like, well, gee, you know, I wonder if I have both air conditioners on. Right. How much, how many kilowatt hours am I drawing? Well, this will show you. Um, but I'm also thinking is if it would do it with SNMP and then you could like graph yeah. it with, uh, with something and, and build this real time graph. Cause that would be cool. I saw a product at one of these echo focus shows that actually you would jack into your fuse box and it would on a circuit by circuit basis, <laughs> let you look at the consumption that though it wasn't cheap. I can't um, imagine it would be. <laughs> but 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 you know for a big place sure. where you know you want to focus in on anything but but they had a thing where it would you know tell you if a certain appliance was on the blink you know based on the power consumption profile if it was starting to break down or something like that it was neat but the, the other thing I want to bring up Dave is that I do believe that, you know the similar thing may apply if you're uh, with a cable modem or other network device I haven't checked this lately but I'm going to assume that if I plug into my cable modem and do not put a firewall between me and the big wide world is I'm going to be seeing a lot of stuff out there, or maybe they're smart enough to help firewall. I, I don't think they are there. It depends. I mean, it, there's some ARP packets that and I haven't tried it in a long time. I haven't looked, but there's some ARP packets that would make it through tons and tons of ARP packets actually would make it through. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're doing a- address resolution. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it could be, could be. But I, I'm not even going to try it because my assumption is, yeah, plugging directly into any sort of, you know, distributed shared network will, will subject you to all sorts of yes uh, 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 shenanigans. All right, I'm going to I'm going to rain pull on the reins a little bit here and and answer yes. Wesson's powerline question and get us back on track. Go. Wesson says I used the Netgear powerline devices for several years until I hardwired the house with Cat Six last year. The ones I use worked, but would get very hot and then crap out until I unplugged them and let them cool off. Do you have similar problems with the new models? The, the answer is very simple. No. In fact, this was one of the things that uh, that they worked very hard to fix. Uh, Pete, in fact, you had some of the old ones, and that's exactly what happened to them. And they overheated and never turned back on they, again. Yeah, they bricked and they're nice paperweights, I guess, if yeah. you want to use them for that. But. That's right. <laughs> that's right. We threw them away. Uh, but yeah, they this was a problem with these and, and was frankly a very common problem, not just with Netgear, but I think with, with all the brands. Uh, so, but now the new, and that's why I say get the new Powerline AV 200 or better, but uh, the Powerline AV stuff is definitely uh, much better about this. I have not had a problem. Uh, July got pretty hot here and, uh, and, and it, you know, it hasn't been an issue. In fact, I, t- I checked them the other day just to, just to see uh, after I got Wesson's question and they were, you know, cool to the touch. So, no problem whatsoever. And I'm not sure if those early ones, I know I had the problem. I would, I tried to put two different ones in my house and, and I was getting some collisions of some data or something and, and it didn't work. Then those bricked. I've right. got a, I've got a new one now that allows me to do up to three devices, but I think you, you're reporting using more than one as yeah. well. And then it's not, a, there's no data problem. So they figured no out problem. whatever data collision problem there right. might've been in the early days too. So right. 
pretty cool to be able to unlimit that. I mean, it's oh, no, yeah. no more pulling wires through walls and ceilings and floors. And right. It's nice. And, you know, they do have um, very small, and I, I don't know the brands off the top of my head, Netgear May, but they do have very small versions of these power line uh, adapters. So you could put one in your laptop bag. In fact, I talked to a guy from Atheros when I was out at CES, and that's the company that creates the power line technology that's sort of baked into all of these things. And what he does is in his laptop bag, he keeps one of these power line deals. And as he goes around the house, he just jacks in and every wall outlet is an ethernet outlet for him. And he just jacks right into it and he's good to go. He says it's better than trying to deal with wireless. Now, of course, you know, he's well steeped in, in the, uh, in the power line Kool-Aid because it's what he does. But uh, but it was pretty cool to hear about that use case that he just, you know, bounces around when he needs a network jack. He just plugs into the wall. He's good to go. Now, the other question I, I don't know if you can answer or not. It, you, they say you're not supposed to use like the monster strip that fil- the power strip, the filters and all that. Are you using any of those or are you right into the wall? I'm plugging right into one. the wall. The yeah. ones that they sent me are actually the Powerline AV Plus. And what those have is they've got a pass through connector on them. So you plug it into the wall and then it's got an ethernet jack on, on one side of it and a power, another power jack on it. So I can plug my power strip into that and feed off, but the ethernet is left to its own device. Yeah. I have not tried it off of a power strip, but I can imagine that would filter it either completely or significantly. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else on this one, John, before we move on to the, the option key. Move on. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Connor and Kelly, actually, Kelly tweeted as Connor wrote us uh, and they were actually and far more than than those two. Uh, Connor wrote Dennis in show 278 said you had to hold down the option key to reopen a hidden window in the application switcher. But you realized that you did not have to. The situation in which you use that option key is when you want to switch to an app that doesn't currently have an open window, but you want to open a new window. If I close the mail app window with command W switch away from it, then if I command tab to it, normally mail activates because you see mails menu bar. But if you want to reopen the mail window, you need to follow the option key instructions provided by Dennis. Also, if you want to make it easier to see which apps are hidden, you can run a terminal command, which makes hidden apps dock icons translucent. And there is a command. It's defaults, right? Com.apple.doc show hidden dash bool space. Yes. And we'll link to a site that shows you that command. So you don't have to write it down. Uh, but that's, that's actually very cool. Kelly points out something a little bit different. And, and she said the option key were also works for bringing up minimized windows rather than hidden. If you move to an app that has minimized windows uh, without holding down the option key, they will not maximize uh so you have to hold down the option key to do that. So so thank you, Dennis, for bringing this topic up. And thank you, Connor and Kelly and everyone else for uh, for writing in and and setting the record straight. Anything on that, John? Have you done any any testing there? No, no. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm just a, I'm, I'm a I'm a simple guy. Yeah, I don't do any of these fancy acrobatics with all these windows and keys and stuff. But it's our job to do the fancy acrobatics. No, sometimes I do. <laughs> All right. Uh, I guess I will read Will's comment and then we'll do our second sponsor because Will kind of leads right into it. But uh, but Will wrote in about our second sponsor, which is Gazelle.com. And 
his quick note was a quick note of thanks for turning a bunch of my techno junk into cash. Not only do I have a few extra bucks in my pocket, the wife is thrilled that I've purged some of the cash of crap. Uh, I guess we might as well talk about Gazelle here to uh, to keep this keep this uh, straightforward. But uh, and then we'll go on to the, the rest of Will's comment, which is unrelated. But what Gazelle is our second sponsor for this show. And what Gazelle does is it allows you to turn your gadgets into cash and you go. It's cool. I, it, I, what I recommend you do is you go to their site and you click on and you go to gazelle.com. And you click on the uh, actually you just type in what you have could be an iPhone, could be a MacBook, could be an old cell phone, could be really anything. And once you kind of drill down, you might type iPhone and then they'll ask, OK, well, is it an original? Is it a you know 3G, 3GS, iPhone 4? And how big is it? You drill down, you find out what it what it is. And then they'll ask you some questions. Is it in good shape? Does it have water damage? Does it work? Does it have the box? Does it have the accessories, et cetera, et cetera? And then they'll give you a price. And the cool part is you get to pick at that point. Do you want to send it in or not? And if you do with most things, they'll actually send you a box and they'll cover the shipping. When they get it, they confirm that it's in the same shape that you described. And assuming that it is, they'll send you a check or a PayPal or really whatever it is you want to uh, you want to do. If that doesn't, uh, if it doesn't match, if it's more, they'll tell you, hey, we're going to give you more. Cool. And then they'll send you more. If it's less, they'll tell you that, too, and give you the option. If you don't want what they say it's worth, they'll send it back to you and it's it's yours. No, no loss, no harm, no foul. If you want it, great. They'll take, you know, take the cash and off they go. It. I recommend you just go there and check it out because it really gives you an idea of what the, the, the old gadgets and, and as, as Connor put it, uh, sorry, as, uh, as will put it, the, uh, the crap that you have lying around is worth, and it might be very well be worth something. And you can bundle a bunch of them together and, you know, boom, maybe you turn it into, you know, something significant. You go out and, uh, get yourself a new iPad or something with the, uh, with the winnings from all your gadgets. So it's gazelle.com. Now here's the cool part. When you do send something in, use the code MacGeek. That's our code. And what it gets you is 5% more than whatever they quote you for your device. So if they say it's worth 100 bucks, well, now it's worth 105 and that's on us. That's uh, actually it's on them, but it's through us. And uh, and, you know, the, the same goes for for whatever. If it's 50 bucks, well, OK, now it's an extra 250. Uh, if it's, you know, a thousand bucks, well, you just got extra 50 bucks. So gazelle.com for all cash, for all your gadgets, go just play with it. That's all. That's all I recommend is just go play with it and you'll, uh, you'll get hooked. You'll you'll wind up setting, sending something in. I, you know, I did. Everybody does. It's cool. Gazelle.com. Anything on that, John, before we uh, move back to will here, I got to send in some of my stuff. Yeah, it's cool. It's fun. Just go, you know, actually go around with it. Well, actually, yes, Dave, at the end of the show, I may, may mm. talk about an item that I will need to. That That's right. At the end of the show. <laughs> That's right. OK, uh, so Will says also a big thanks for the advice on my Mac Pro. This is a good little story with the seemingly fried motherboard. Well, it turns out it was the motherboard. And of course, I was one month out of my Apple Care warranty. However, I hauled the 60 pound monster to my local Apple store here in Cincinnati and the extremely helpful geniuses confirmed the worst. 
Though because the machine was completely clean and I clearly knew I was talking about, thanks to your advice, the kind folks offered to replace the board at no cost and replaced my video card just because it sounded like the fan might be a little loose if you tilted the machine slightly. So not only did they save me a thousand bucks, they took precautions for other possible future out of warranty issues. So two lessons. Apple Care, as you say, a must, even on desktops, and go in knowledgeable, well-maintained hardware. That equation seems to have worked out brilliantly in this case. And it is true. Apple, they, the Apple Care warranty ends, but I, I think it's, and I don't know this for sure, but my guess is that your Apple Care warranty actually runs a month longer than, than, uh, than it states. Uh, that uh, I have to think that based on all the feedback that we've gotten, I don't, you know, I can't guarantee it. Of course, Apple will never guarantee it, but, uh, well, but certainly their corporate culture is, yes, we want you to have a good experience. That's right. Um, you know, and I had an issue once with my, with my sons in a repair shop and Apple stepped in and said, well, we're going to cover that for you anyway. Right. Right. Just incredible. Yeah. Well, they, you know, they also know how many Macs you've bought. Exactly. Right? And they know I'm going to buy another one, yes. particularly if they keep me happy. Right. So. And probably even if they don't. Right. But, no. you know, that's Shh. right. Don't <laughs> that. All right. Uh, what are we moving on to here, John? Saved um, searches? Kevin? Kevin? Yeah. All right. Yeah, that's a, that's a good tidbit, I think. Okay. All right, well, then we'll share this tip from Kevin. Hi, John and Dave and Pilot Pete. This is uh, Kevin here in the UK. Just been listening to uh, Matt GeekGab277 and specifically your tip on uh, trying to search your Mac for various things, but primarily how to search the the library, which doesn't normally come up in a find. Um, What I've done is actually saved a search criteria, which obviously you can do now under Snow Leopard. I've included that uh, on with my email, so uh, you can perhaps make that available through the uh, the web page. Um, but yes, you just set up your search criteria as normal, and then in the top left there, you'll see a little option to save that, uh, and you'll add it to the sidebar. Hope this helps. Keep up the great work. Cheers. Well, thanks, Kevin. That's uh, that's pretty good. And uh, <laughs> how did he know you'd be here today? I Pete? don't know. I know. How do you do that? You, um, uh, we we do have a do you have a comment on this or I'm going to play the other one from our 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 friend in France here about the save searches right in a row to keep some consistency going, John. But do you have anything to add about about Kevin's before we move on? Um, I think I'll add it af- afterwards. Okay, all right. Let me uh, let's cue this one up. Hi guys, this is Bukaru from Montreal, Quebec. Oh, sorry. Uh, regarding show two, my apologies. I, I I made the assumption based on your name that you were from France, but of course you're Canadian. You're our neighbor to the north here. So uh, I'll start that again and I'll introduce you as our friend from Canada. Hi guys, this is Bukaru from Montreal, Quebec. Uh, regarding show 277, you said that you weren't able to search system file in the library directory or the preference directory if you're not searching inside that that directory Um, this is true but you can remedy to that if you search for something as you said and then you add criteria with the plus sign at the end of the the title bar that says search this Mac Um, and then you choose the on the second line, you choose um, the the pull-down menu, which, which says uh, kind. You go to other, and then you search for 
system and you should find system files uh, with a description saying include system files such as preference and plugins and you have a checkbox at the end uh, end menu and you check that you push OK and then you can on the same pull down menu that says kind you can choose now you can choose system files it should appear on that menu and then you select are included and then you can from now you can search system files like preference and library so this is my trick of the week thank you this is where you cut me off all right thank you very much that's a great great tip too so go ahead john yeah, there's a huge list of things when you when you type into that other. I'm amazed at the number of things there. The, the only thing I want to mention, uh, the mechanics of this. So I think it's actually a smart folder when you save this. And what it does for you, which I thought was kind of neat. So it'll save it in your user directory slash library slash, well, you don't have to do the slash, saved searches. And then, yes, as uh, the first tip said, there's a little checkbox saying add to sidebar. I wonder why you wouldn't want to add it to the sidebar unless you don't want it you know, really crowded. Right. But I just want to offer that. So in case you don't save it into the sidebar and you do want to find it again, that is, is where it places those for you. Cool. No, nice feature. I, I, I almost always learn something in every show. Just you know, I'm, I'm going to throw something in off the wall here. The, uh, you can add even more to that list by installing spotlight plugins. Uh, and Apple's got a bunch of them on their site, but I think you can get them elsewhere. If you go to Apple, dot com slash download slash mac os x slash spotlight you'll see spotlight plugins that add even more functionality uh to spotlight there it's actually spotlight's pretty cool i know we we sort of we sort of moan about it sometimes because it winds up chewing on the processor and the disc and taking up a bunch of uh resources when it's indexing itself but the reality is it can be pretty cool you've just got to tweak it and make it work to uh to be your friend so yeah, the, the the only complaint I have is sometimes it'll get a little aggressive about what it thinks it should be indexing, especially sometimes I've seen this and I'm not quite sure why it happens, mm -hmm. but it'll try to index a drive where I said, um, no, and you, yeah. you, know, you, you, even if you explicitly put it in the, uh, in the spotlight, uh, place saying, please don't do this, which is actually, yeah, so system preferences, spotlight privacy, and then there'll be a little window that says prevent spotlight from searching here. And you just put in the drives uh, or the folders you, or the folders. Yeah, you, you can put anything in there um, and those will not show up. Though I think we discussed it before, David, it actually does index everything. No. It's just filled. No, no. Uh, so there's two things in the spotlight preferences. One is you can check the items that you want to appear in the results list. Um, right. And that everything is indexed, whether or not it's checked there. Uh, you just are choosing what you what results you want. But right. on the other side, when you go to the privacy tab, if something is there and it's working properly and you're right, sometimes it doesn't work properly. But uh, but if it's listed there and everything's working properly, it won't even index. So the privacy tab is different from the uh, the appearance or whatever the, the first tab is. I don't have it in front of me. Oh, search results, search results. Right. Right. Got it. Okay, good. Yeah. Wanted to clarify that. Yeah. I know there was a little, little subtlety in, in what, what uh, both of those do. That's right. Yeah. So if you go in there and you uncheck, say, uh, applications, it still will index your applications. It just won't show them to you in your search results. So if you turn it back on, those results will be there immediately. Uh, 
unless of course you filtered the location for those results in the privacy tab and then it won't mm-hmm. index them at all. So. Right. Cool. Uh, you know, let's, um, you know, let's, let's answer Vito's question, John. Does that sound good? I, I like this. Question. Oh, I, I like that one. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's because I think I got it, but all right, well, we'll, we'll, we'll discuss. That's right. Uh, so, uh, there's a long email trail here. I think I'm, I'm going to try my best to explain it. Vito writes, I just bought a two terabyte USB E SATA phantom drive for Mac mall for backing up time machine, etc. And rough tests. It's about five times as slow as my internal drives in copying. That doesn't sound right. Uh, you want to take it from here, John, or do you want me to, uh, to keep reading this email trail between us and, and Vito? Well, I, th- I think I can, I think I can describe what he was viewing here by going into a calculation here. Okay. So anyways, I'm looking at part of my response then, but basically he gave us an amount of, an amount of data and an amount of time. Yep. Where it took uh, to do things. So the way that I quickly tried to boil this down into an effective, now the the rate that you want to get in this case to determine what the heck's going on, in my opinion is megabytes per second. Right. Now, that's not always stated clearly. And sometimes, for example, so here, he was, of course, talking gigabytes per hour. Okay. Okay. Well, going from hours to minutes, that's pretty easy, right? 60. (laughs) Right. And going from gigabytes to megabytes is, you know, pretty straightforward. The tool that I like to use, Dave, and, and Google, you know, Google is just so smart sometimes. So Google has a little feature where either in Google itself or I even think the Google bar in Safari if you type in a number and a unit, it could be a single unit or it could be a something per something. And right. then you do an equals and then a question mark. And then what you want to convert it to, it will tell you. That's right. Isn't that spiffy? Right. So, so basically what I came up with were some very rough rates here. Or you could you know, divide by 10. It's not exactly right. But you, you, it'll get you in the ballpark. So basically using his internal drive, he was getting a rate of about 106 megabytes per second. That's, that's crazy. Well, no, that's good. That's a good rate. There's no way he was getting 106 megabytes a second In, internally. Uh, right? There's no, no. What kind of drive is that? Well, I'm going to tell you, Dave. Okay. Gee, uh, maybe maybe there's another benchmark I could use, Dave. I'm going to give you another benchmark, Dave. Okay. The mechanical drive that I just bought for my computer. Yeah. Check this out. Yeah, because of course the eSATA interface. Now he probably has an eSA or a SATA for an internal drive. I'm going to assume that it's on a SATA interface, probably SATA two. Correct. That's three megabits per second. Of course, you're never going to reach that. Gigabits. Gigabits. Yes, that's what I said. No, you said mega. No, I said giga. Well, you may have heard it. Anyways, recording. (laughs) All right, hold on. Let's go back. Anyways, no, you're you're correct. So eSATA is either one point five, three, or six gigabits per second, depending on whether it's one, two, three. So, for example, the drive that I just got, Dave, when, when I decided to get a mechanical drive, and, and here is the important figure, and I was, I was trying to get this from Vito, and I couldn't get the exact model of drive, because you okay. really need the spec sheet for the exact model of drive. My drive has a platter-to-interface speed of 1,245 megabits per second. Okay. What does that come out to in megabytes per second, you ask? And I'll Why tell you, 100, right. 155. Have you tested it at that? Because that's really fast for a mechanical drive. Yes, it is. uh, When I got this drive, Dave, I did my homework. This is one of the fastest 
drives. And, and the thing is, this is really the figure that you want to look at when you're getting right. any sort of drive. You don't care about the interface because you're probably, unless you have an SSD, you're probably never going to reach that. Um, and obviously, as we've discussed in the past, SSDs are faster. But anyways, so what, what, what I'm trying to say is that that 106 megabyte per second figure he was getting, to me, sounded reasonable for an internal drive on a SATA interface, okay? It seems really fast, right? Because SSDs aren't clocking it. I mean, most SSDs... Well, well there, 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 there may be some inaccuracy because he was giving me figures in big lumps, okay? Right. He was saying gigabytes and hours. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to derail our conversation, though, here, because this is uh. it's fine, you know. Uh, have you... T- your drive, that, that you, do you say clocks in it, what, what 155... Right. Megabytes. Megabytes. Right. That's correct. Have you tested that with a drive benchmark utility like Drive Genius? Uh, I can bring them up, but I I was reaching over 100 at times. I can get the exact benchmarks. I don't have them in front of me. Yeah, because that's really fast. I mean, it there's it is. Yeah, that's smoking for a mechanical for for small. Yes, it is. Yeah. 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 No, I, I've, I've discussed this in the past. For, for small block sizes, I would not typically reach that. But once sure. I started getting into large, contiguous block sizes, yeah. yes, you're never going to reach it. But it's a, it's a good figure. And actually, I, may, I know I have it on my portable right now, but I don't want to derail the conversation, right. even, though you, you, even though you did your best. <laughs> no. Now, the, now the thing Cause was... Because I, 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 on the next show, I would love to talk about that. Because that's, like I said, that's really fast for a mechanical drive. For a single mechanical drive to break a hundred, that's that's a lot. So yeah, again, I think I can bring them up um, if, if, if yeah. while you're talking about something else, I'll bring okay. those up because I did All do right, the benchmarks because right. okay, cool. I, I I was expecting you and I to have a knockdown drag out yeah. SSD versus mechanical drive and and why what I did was not totally lame. Right. So <laughs> the thing is, when I did the calculation for his USB drive with yep. the numbers that he gave me. I came up with a throughput of about 21 megabytes per second. Okay. Now, since he was connecting it with USB 2, and, and so I poked around a little bit online, and I think effectively, USB 2, you'll be lucky to get 30 megabytes per second. Right. That's right. Even though in theory it may be maximum, there's overhead, and USB is you know driven by the host and all that stuff there. So to answer his question, um, in my opinion... USB, in this case, is the bottleneck. Sounds like it. Yeah, if his now, drive can go faster than, than the 35, let's say, that he might get out of USB 2 or FireWire 400, uh, then, yeah, it sounds like that's the bottleneck. Right. So um, if I had the exact model, so I think he did say he had a WD7200 RPM drive, which doesn't okay. tell me enough right. to determine what the maximum speed is. But he did say it's an eSATA drive, and yep. this is where I actually learned a little something, or, or I got additional information. We had, um, I'm going to say hi to our friend Duffy, because actually we helped him solve this problem at one point. He has a Mac Pro, and he has external eSATA drives. Right. And he was having some weird behavior, and, and it was funny because I was looking at his description of the problem, and all of a sudden I looked at the particular eSATA interface he bought, and I'm like, um, by the way, Duffy, did you plug or unplug this drive while the computer was on? And his answer was yes. And I'm like, well, your, your particular eSATA interface says that's a bad thing to do, equivalent to doing that to the drives inside of your computer. Right. So when I wrote back to Vito, right. I said, well, my conclusion is that eSATA will certainly, if there's any sort of bottleneck, would certainly be a faster option. Sure. And then, uh, but then I got some feedback from a few folks online, including you, Dave, I think, saying e- eSATA may be hot swappable. Depends on the interface. 
but I do not think it's guaranteed. Like with USB and FireWire, right. it's guaranteed to be hot swappable in that you could still screw things up, but at least they're advertised where you can do it while the computer's on. You may have to eject, but other than that, they're, yeah. they're all advertised to be able to do that. Uh, yeah, so. I, the, the, the bus will re-enumerate when you add or remove a device and, and recognize it. Now, if you pull a device out mid-copy or even without properly ejecting it from the Mac, you may damage your data, but the computer's going to know, yeah, okay, that device went away and that's cool, or it came back and that's cool too. With, with some eSATA, that's fine. And with others, as as you as you found with Duffy's uh, machine, that the bus just isn't only does its enumeration once and that's its startup. So it just really can't deal with uh, it, it leaving because it doesn't know to kind of rego and, and scan that bus. So. Cool. Whew. All right. So, I yeah, I'm curious to hear about your Drive Genius uh, results that I found Drive Genius to be the best program on the Mac to do drive benchmarks. It's it's really clear cut. It checks everything out. And uh, and and I and I like it. It's it's excellent. It's and, you excellent. know, I'm glad you talked about Drive Genius days because I just realized that they came out with a new version recently. Yeah. Version three, if I'm not mistaken. Right. Right. And yeah. um, and I'm going to be trying out uh, because I asked our friends there, uh, you know, if, if I could take a look at the new improved features. Sure. So. Cool. Yeah. I'd, I'd be curious to hear that. Uh, all right. So we've got a couple more things to talk about. I'm going to talk about uh, one thing here and then we'll let you and then you'll talk about one thing, too. And then we'll we'll get out of here because we're we're wrapping up uh, on many of our shows in the past, including at least one cool stuff found show. I and and our listeners have mentioned the program Hazel uh, and it was it's always been on my list of things to try someday. Well, someday was about a week and a half ago when and I'd used it and, you know, I, I had uh, had a license for it. I was ready to go, but I just never really dug in in prep in preparing the speech that I gave at Princeton last week, which was all about cool stuff found. I thought. Hazel might really be one of these cool things to mention. So I went through and and installed it and now I will never give it up. So this this software is really cool. It sits on your Mac and the idea behind it is that it will allow you to manage a folder uh, and do various different things. I'm sure you could do a lot of this with folder actions. It's it's sort of like folder actions on steroids. And the thing that they set it up with is your downloads folder, the folder that's constantly having stuff thrown at it. And and even their default actions give you an idea of what you can do. Now, when you install Hazel, just to be clear, none of these actions are enabled by default. Uh, they're they're pre-built, but you have to turn them on. So nothing's going to happen uh, without you going in and specifying that this is going to this is going to do it. But they've got one thing in there that is built to highlight new items. So it goes through and anything that's been downloaded or added to that folder in the last day, it highlights in red. And then there's another action that says anything that's older than a day, uh, make it not red anymore. So you've got this constant, uh, constantly changing and updating. So if you, if your downloads folder gets full, you can start seeing, Oh, what did I just put here? What isn't new? And then you can actually go and say, you know, highlight things that are more than four weeks old of a different color. So you can see, oh, well, this one's getting pretty stale. Maybe I should go and, and you know, clean that stuff out. Uh, it's also got a trash management feature. A lot, a lot of people coming over from the Windows side are very used to an automatically emptying trash can. 
Uh, this allows you to do that. You can say, look, keep items in the trash for a day, a week, a month, uh, you know, how, two weeks, however long you want to set it to. Or you can have it set to be a trash can that, you know, maxes out at, uh, you know, one gigabyte. So if your trash gets bigger than a gigabyte, just, you know, start deleting the stuff that's that's older than that. And it'll constantly keep going through this. Very, very cool thing. And then, of course, the last thing that it adds is uh, an app sweeper type deal where when you take an application and move it to the trash, it will notice and say, hey, that app has a bunch of other files related to it. Do you want me to trash those too? And if you say yes, and it'll even show you what they are. So you can pick and choose and say, well, I, you know, my preference is no, but the rest of these support files, yes. And off they go. And then if you drag the app back in from the trash, it'll offer to pull all that stuff back uh, as, as long as it's still there, of course. Um, but very, very cool stuff. Oh, and, uh, and one other thing, John, in the downloads folder examples, just to give you an idea what this thing can do, you can have it download Let's say music, right? If you download music files, you can have it automatically add any music files that it sees in your downloads folder to a playlist in iTunes. So you could create like a Hazel playlist and then that were even a downloads playlist, right? And have Hazel shovel any music into your iTunes. So that way you don't have to think, oh, I downloaded that. But, you know, I didn't sync to my iPod because I, I, I didn't bring it into iTunes. Dummy me, right? Totally handles it for you. So, yeah, very cool stuff. I knew. In fact, I think when we talked about it before, John, I knew it was one of those things that once once we started using it, we'd be hooked on it. And that's totally been true for me. So uh, so Hazel, there you go. It. Uh, I know it's not a cool stuff found show, but we'd mentioned it in cool stuff found enough and I'd never actually done anything with it. So uh, so I wanted to uh, I wanted to take a minute and and preach its uh, its features because it's pretty darn cool. So they need, they need to be a new sponsor now. I know. I know. Well, they, they probably don't need to be right. I'm oh, ranting about the stuff anyway, but they, yeah, you're right. <laughs> All, All right. right John. So I did bring up one benchmark that I found. So it's not drive genius. It's X bench, but it's a benchmark. And for large block sizes, the drive that I have right now, um, got figures in, uh, I'm looking at the, the, the best ones here yeah. about 86 megabytes per second. That's, that's pretty darn fast. Wow. I mean, when we had our um, uh, spirited discussion about the wisdom of me upgrading from an older 5400 right. to a 7200, it wasn't the only parameter that went up. And the thing is, they had a bigger ca and it was just faster overall. Right. But, uh, but I would say the throughput doubled. So uh, that's great. You know, you're correct in that an SSD will always give you better speeds. Well, uh, and my to be, only to be fair, the SSD, even when I was running the SSD on a USB two interface, so totally maxing out at you know 480 megabits per second on the best day, uh, it, which you know translates to a, you know maybe thirty. I was getting about 31, 32 megabytes a second when I when I bench test the uh, SSD on the USB. But it was the latency that made the drive faster. Uh, in fact, I noticed almost no sure. difference moving the the SSD from USB to eSATA. And can I get more acronyms into the sentence? <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead. Um, Sorry. Well, and then the last thing, to, uh, can I talk about my toy now? Yeah, go. All right. So here we go. So basically I got a new toy here. So, so I noticed something over the weekend. So I, um, I like Redbox, and uh, I think I've used them too, but they're, yeah. you know, basically $1 a night rentals. And so the other, and you can beat a, uh, you know, free rental codes out of them or they have promotions. But anyway, so I went to the, the online. So what you could do is you can go online and reserve one. And then when you show up at the kiosk, it's in there and it holds it for you. And then you swipe your card and it gives it to you. Right. Otherwise you, uh, not all of the kiosks have all the movies. And then I noticed they were showing some titles twice. Well, 
the reason they were showing titles twice, Dave, is that they're starting to rent Blu-ray. And I'm like, ah. No, I think it's more. I, I think it's $1.50 or something instead of a dollar. Okay. But also, my local video store has Blu-ray as well. So I decided, you know, let me take another look at what's out there. So I looked at what's out there and the two places I went to. So we have a local, uh, it's a, one of these uh, warehouse stores called BJ's. And sure. they have a lot of consumer electronics for pretty cheap. And then just to even it out, I went to the local Walmart. And I looked at all the stuff that they had. I brought my iPod Touch, so I was typing in the model. I probably should have taken pictures, so that may have started freaking them out. But basically, I was there. Now, they didn't know if I was you know, recording the information or, or texting or whatever. But I was basically just taking down all the model numbers and the prices so I could then go back home, go online, and just find out what the best bang for the buck is. But, but I was really looking for instant gratification. And I managed to find um, a Sylvania... Basic, basic, you know, no Wi-Fi, no network, no nothing, just a Blu-ray player. I think you can play, I think it has, you know, an SD card reader. But anyways, it works fine. Came with the HDMI cable, which, you know, a lot of people, I mean, even in the Walmart, they had them on special hooks where you couldn't just take them because, I mean, they, even they nail you for, I mean, it was ridiculous. So, so basically, the player came with the HDMI. I have two HDMI on my TV. Right. And it looks wonderful. But here was the thing. So uh, the only downside is that uh, not having a network interface. Now, some of these require firmware updates. And so I went to Sylvania, and I'm like, oh, let me check it out. And they have a kind of neat way of doing it. You download the file. It's a zip file, and it, it decompresses to a bin file. And then you put it on a piece of media. In this case, it would have to be, you know, it could be a CD, uh, a CDR, a DVD, RW, whatever. Yeah. And it's supposed to look at it and say, oh, okay, here's a software update. Great. You want me to update it? It's like, yeah, sure. So. Downloaded it, put it on a, a CDRW, I think, to start. Did it on the Mac side. And here's the, now the, the technical question. because So after I wrote it to that, went over to the player, put the disk in, and it's like, oh, here's a software update for me. Um, you want me to read this and update? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And it sits there for a couple of minutes, and then it says, there's an error. Download and do it again. And I'm like, oh, man. Try another piece of media? Well, I tried that too, but then here was my other question, Dave. So, so of course, the burning, is, I use the built-in burning feature okay. of the Mac. Now, the one thing I thought, so what I did is I highlighted the disk I just burned, and the format type was Mac OS X Extended, or Mac OS Extended. Like, oh, maybe because the instructions said to do it on a PC. So what maybe. did I do? I fired up VMware, and I did the same thing. Pulled over the file, and I burned it within VMware, Yep. And that came out as an ISO 9660 yep. disk, which is, you know, we'll, we'll cross platforms. Put that in, same thing. Huh. The only thing is that I do believe the default behavior of the Mac is that it will, if you use the built-in burning, because I was looking for a way to specify the format. And I believe the default is that they will make a disk that will be readable on both. Is that if you put it in a... If right. you put it in a Mac, it'll come up as Mac OS Extended. If you put it in a PC, it'll, it'll come up as the ISO 9660. I believe that's the default behavior of the built-in burning. And as I found, at least the burning on XP, it makes it as an ISO 9660 only. But I don't know what's wrong. I mean, after this, their, their service is open. I'm going to call. Now, the one thing you could say is, John, why are you messing with it? It seems to work fine. Right. <laughs> but, John, why are you messing with it? It seems to work fine. <laughs> well, people have warned me that, that, that due to the relatively new nature of blu-ray and just due to some of the wacky copy protection stuff it doesn't hurt to upgrade the firmware now maybe i shouldn't even bother i mean i have i've only had one disc where the beginning was it was a, a dvd uh not a blu-ray and it had a little glitch on the intro but everything i played on it so far so you know the first night i got it i did um a double header i did minority report and fifth element and those are pretty nice uh, hd movies cool cool <laughs> 
So it's fun, but but I'm scratching my head over. So number one, I, I don't know if you know off the top of your head the, the, what the default behavior does, or if you can. I have a couple of ideas. So sure. one is that you could just have crummy media. Uh, computers are far more, sure. you know, far, far more tolerant than than all the media players, you know, dedicated media players, DVD players, CD players that I've that I've seen. So it could just be, and and I've seen it where it's not just a, one bad piece of media, but the whole stock doesn't hit a certain specification and it never works, especially true with the, the DVD dual layer media uh, CDs seem to be pretty good. Even if you buy the cheap bulk ones, I haven't had a real problem with them, but maybe the Blu-ray player doesn't like it. So that that's possibility. Number one, in which case, mm-hmm. you, you know, the rest of this is a losing battle. Uh, the thing is, I, and I believe windows does this too. The Mac, when it burns a, a, a CD, I don't think it closes the session. I think it leaves it uh, or it doesn't close the disc. It finalizes the session, but it doesn't close the disc so that it allows you to burn more and more to one disc. So the player may not like if assuming the Mac and Windows are both doing this, the player may not like it. I would recommend using something. It's a commercial package, of course, but something like Toast, where you can really control not just the format, but. You know, whether it's going to close and if it's going to burn it at single speed or eight speed or whatever, you know, you really can get into the nitty gritty with something like that and and drill down and know exactly what you're creating. Because you could create a UDF or an ISO 9660 or whatever with Toast and and make that disk exactly what you want without the OS getting in the way and saying, no, 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 trust me. I know what to do. You know, so that that's where I would go with it is I would I would try it with Toast. Yep. Uh, yeah, I think I got that kicking around somewhere. Yep. So. Yep. Even an older version of it, as long as it, you know, as long as it runs, uh, should work totally fine for what you're doing here. So that mm-hmm. that would be my thought. But uh, yeah, I don't. All right. But it's you know what? I, I, hang. I gotta. I gotta back up a minute. What back happened up. here was in the course of less than a day, you made a significant purchase decision. This isn't something you you hemmed and hawed over for six months and uh, and you just you made an impulse buy with a gadget. And that's pretty cool, I think. I think that, you know, well, that qualifies well, for like well, celebration. The, well, here my. Um, yeah. OK, well, uh, movie party at my place tonight. Sweet. Everybody uh, stop by. <laughs> I'm, on my, I'm on my way down. <laughs> All right. But, uh, but no, my criteria as a uh, as a value minded consumer was that I really don't want to pay more than 100 bucks for a Blu-ray player. All right. And this was 86 bucks plus tax. It was $90. Now, the thing is, you did the right thing because you can go crazy researching Blu-ray players. And in the end, you just want something that's going to play movies. And that's that. Now, maybe, you know, maybe you do want you already have something that can play Netflix. Well, that's the thing. All the other features that so some had 802.11 and built in some had network ports, some had Pandora and Netflix and Amazon. And it's like the TiVo already has that. So all I needed was basic, basic. And I was able to get that. Now, the thing is, I do have a DVD player. Right. That I'm not using anymore, so maybe I'll send it uh, oh, to gazelle.com. One I, the- I looked. I think they still look. They definitely accept Blu-ray players. I, okay. I think. I mean, I may not get a lot for it. Sure. But, but cool. I, I have no use for it now. So Right. Right. There you go. Perfect. Perfect. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, you did the right thing. That's been my problem, and that's why we don't have a Blu-ray player. Because every time I think about it, I start over-researching it and, and really 
for 80 bucks. You just go buy one and don't think about it. But just put it in, plug it in, and that's the end of that. Yeah, how long ago were those things, you know, 1000 bucks? Right. 800 bucks. Right. Oh, I love it. Oh, it was insane. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so the market's uh, adapting. You, I, I right. certainly saw them for more, but it had way too many. It, yeah, it was getting way too confusing. I'm like, let me find the thing that has, is basic. and it just uh, does what I want. Right. So, again, Dave, I'm going to have the, the big movie party tonight. So, you know, you may want to call us and, and ask us for direction. No. Uh, 206-666-GEEK, which is... 4335. Or you could certainly email us with your questions, comments, concerns. Feedback at MacGeekGab.com. And I know you said feedback at MacGeekGab.com, Oh, you heard me Dave. right. I said feedback at MacGeekGab.com. Or if you're a premium subscriber, and we really appreciate it if you are, premium at MacGeekGab.com. Not only with a premium subscription do you get an extra two episodes a month at least, but you also get the warm, comforting feeling of knowing that you've uh, <laughs> directly supported your two favorite geeks. So there you have it. Uh, you can Skype to MacGeekGab. And uh, and I and, and you can leave us iTunes comments to which we cannot respond, but we can respond to everything else you mentioned. So do it all; it's fine. Uh, Michael Johnston from the We Have Communicators podcast converts this to AAC for your enhancement. Cashfly provides all the bandwidth at Cashfly.com from to get the podcast from us to you. Blog World Expo in uh, in October the fourteenth through the sixteenth. Uh, I've almost booked my flights. Flights got cheaper a little bit today. So uh, so October 14th through 16th. I, I think I'm actually going to fly out on the 14th. I don't think I'm attending the social media thing because I've got a scheduling deal. But I'll definitely be there for the two days, the Friday and Saturday of Blog World Expo. If you want to come, uh, use the coupon code ObserverVIP. O-B-S-E-R-V-E-R-V-I-P. That gets you 20% off of whatever the going rate is for... A, a, a ticket to Blog World Expo, so a pass to Blog World Expo. So that you definitely want to make sure you take advantage of that. Podcast Marketplace includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Yojimbo from Barebones Software, Disc Label from Smile on My Mac, Notebook from Circus Ponies, and Gazelle.com with the coupon code MacGeek gets you 5% off. I think that's it, John. A lot, a lot of geek. Just a lot of geek. Hey, man, you know, that's how we roll around here. Pete, thanks for stopping by. It's oh, good to have you here. here. It's yeah. been too long. It has been. I was just working too hard. I know. You know, they quit sending paychecks, so if I don't go to work, they quit sending them. I don't get it. That's just not right. That's the truth. <laughs> well, you just need to make sure that if you're not going to work, that you don't get caught. Made up.